instead of going to church. I know this is scarcely within the realm of possibility for you to envision, but think with me. Imagine a day when you decide you're going to sleep in instead of going to church. This is the first really popular bad idea of the day. Okay? You decide, after some glares from your wife, that the least you could do if you're going to be sleeping in and staying home is that you could get up and watch church on TV. Because the idea of doing church in your pajamas has always been appealing to you. Okay? This is the second really popular bad idea that has come to you in the morning. So as you flip channels, you catch a guy that seems nice enough. And you hear him saying something like this. I believe biblical prosperity is scriptural and it's taught throughout the Bible. Giving to the Lord is so important that God has promised that those who give for the work of the gospel will be blessed and protected. Today I want to share with you what the scriptures have to say about biblical prosperity because I believe that we are coming into a time of great abundance for the sake of the gospel. The gospel is being preached around the world and a great harvest of blessings is coming to those who are supporting the cause of Christ around the world. It's the Lord who gives you seed to sow, and it's the Lord who will multiply that seed and increase the fruits of your righteousness. The Lord will enrich you in everything to all bountifulness, which will bring him great honor and glory in these last days around the world. As you give, you are declaring the gospel to the nations of the world. You are bringing the message of salvation to multitudes throughout the earth. The reason for biblical prosperity is clear. The gospel must be preached. This is why a wealth transfer is coming. And so you're curious about what he means by this wealth transfer idea. So you pick up Siri and you say, Siri, tell me about this guy. <laughs> tell me about how the wealth transfer is going in his life. And you find out that this guy's net worth is $42 million. And so you're thinking, there seems to be a log jam in the wealth transfer somewhere along the way. If the whole idea of me, me, me being prospered is so that the gospel will go out, there's something broke in the wealth transfer. And then you start thinking about your own net worth. That's too discouraging. So you have another idea because your wife is still glaring at you because you stayed home and are watching church in your pajamas instead of being there. She's reading her Bible. You think, well, maybe I could at least read my Bible this morning um, instead of just watching TV. And this is the first really good idea you've had of the morning. Um, and you remember that the church where you're supposed to be this morning is teaching through the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, they're in Matthew chapter 10. So you open your Bible up to Matthew chapter 10. This is what you read. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. And so you're looking at your Bible and you're reading these words. 
And you're listening to TV and you hear the next preacher that comes on say that anyone can create by faith and words the dreams he desires. Health, wealth, happiness, success. And right now you're finding out it's really, really hard to reconcile the prosperity that the TV preacher offers with the persecution that Jesus offers. And then you have the second really good idea of the morning as you click off the TV and you look at your watch and you realize you still have time to make it to the second service. And so here you are, early. <laughs> Got to the first service even. And you're trying to sort these contradictory messages out. And so that's what we want to do this morning, is look at that passage of Jesus teaching his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. If you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, we'll look at the, the remaining portion of it this morning, starting in verse 16. But let's pray as soon as you find your way there. God, have mercy on us this morning that we might believe what is true and order our lives around it with great faith and much joy. Believing that there is no happier place on earth than the center of your will following your son wherever that would lead. And so I pray for the good work of your spirit um, in our ears, our minds, our hearts now, and our lives beyond this time. We ask this in Christ's great name. Amen. Okay, last week, we read this at the back end of chapter 9 of the Gospel of Matthew. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then at the very beginning verses of chapter 10, as the action that expresses Jesus' compassion for those shepherdless multitudes that are suffering, so Jesus sends the twelve out. He called to him, it says, verse 1 of chapter 10, his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal every disease and every affliction. And as we walked through the first 15 or so verses last week of chapter 10, we saw that Jesus promises to provide for these sent ones in amazing ways. They don't have to take any money or extra supplies because Jesus promises to provide for them. They don't have to book a hotel because God will provide a home receptive to them and their message for them to stay in. Jesus says to his disciples effectively as he sends them out in the first part of chapter 10, I got this. Okay, I got this. No worries. I got this. It's right there in the Greek. You can look it up. But today, in the back end of chapter 10, as we look at Jesus' continuing instructions to these sent ones, um, the instructions take a different slant. Having promised in the first part to provide, Jesus said last week, I'll provide for you. 
Trust me, I'll provide for you. Now he says, and you'll suffer. He assures them of that. In verse 16, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And Jesus is... It's, it's fascinating how common this happens in Jesus' teaching. He's trotting out all these animal similes, all these animal comparisons. And he does this all the time. You know, here he says, um, you're like a sheep. You're like serpents. You're to be like doves. And uh, John Stott says that we often have a good theology of redemption, not a good theology of creation. And he says, you, you got to read both books. you got to read the Bible and you got to read creation because God is speaking us through both. And so Stott was an avid bird watcher as a result of that. And he says, you got to have some realm of creation that you are, you are exploring. Could be the stars, could be flowers, could be butterflies, could be birds, could be anything. But you got to have some form of creation that you are studying for insight into the creator. And Jesus is trotting out all these um, illustrations and comparisons here to teach us. And the preeminent one is that we are sheep. This is common. They are animals wholly dependent on a shepherd for their daily care. This is not a very intimidating animal, the sheep. Okay. It doesn't, doesn't strike fear in the hearts of people when a sheep comes after them. And Jesus says, this is how I'm sending you out. I'm sending you out like sheep. Dale Bruner says, the animals on the seals of great states are almost invariably impressive-looking creatures. Lions, eagles, bears, other fearful-looking beasts. The main animals on the seal of Christian mission are quite different. Sheep and doves. Jesus indicates that this mission of sheep to wolves is not a mistake. He's sending us that way. It's how he wants us to go. It's the way the true God, Bruner says, in contrast to all false gods, works in history. It's the way of intentional vulnerability. Sheep. Doves. The image implies vulnerability. The addition of serpent, serpent imagery means, he says, that they aren't to be stupidly vulnerable. Okay? Snakes never expect to be treated well by people. Okay. Just doesn't happen much. And so as sheep sent out amongst wolves, they'll be persecuted by governments and even religious authorities. They're going to be arrested and says they're going to be flogged. Um, these synagogue courts uh, reportedly uh, worked this way largely. They brought you before them for some kind of religious violation or heresy. You were warned once, the second time you were flogged. And by implication here, Jesus is expecting his followers to persevere in their teachings even when they face this kind of suffering. And they are suffering, though. If you look at that last verse, to bear witness before them. 
before these important authorities <clears throat> and the Gentiles. And remember last week Jesus said, don't go to the Gentiles. Go first to the Jews. But now you see a strategy is also for the nations, for Gentiles who were excluded in the earlier strategy. Jesus is sending them out to suffer, but he is not sending them out alone. In this hostile environment, we again have embedded in this part of the message the language of God's provision wrapped all around these warnings about impending persecution and suffering. Uh, in the next couple of verses, Jesus says, when they deliver you over, it's going to happen. Don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus promises them the work of the very Spirit of God in their life when they face these terrifying situations of being brought before really important people and interrogated there. The Spirit will give them words to be witnesses before these important people. Now, what this is not, I mean, he doesn't say don't prepare words, but he says don't worry about your words. The Spirit will give them to you. It does not necessarily imply spontaneity. And it definitely doesn't imply spontaneity in this situation. Okay? It'd be a bad idea for me to show up and spontaneously think, I wonder what I want to preach on today. Um, that'd be a bad idea. I don't do that, by the way. Some of you can't tell. I don't do that. <laughs> but it's interesting. The church of my mom's childhood, the Apostolic Christian Church, located uh, predominantly in the Midwest, uh, they do that. That's how their, their preachers work. They, they get up and they drop the Bible open uh, for an Old Testament, re random Old Testament reading, random New Testament reading, and then they preach from primarily the New Testament. And what I'm told happens is that these preachers have really well-worn Bibles, you know, pages folded. So they fall open to certain pages. Um, but it would be a mistake to try it here. It would be a really big mistake to try this at your next preaching class at seminary. It's not what it's talking about. It's the promise of the presence of God with you to give you words of witness when you are in the most terrifying situation imaginable. Okay. Their only worry, <clears throat> their only worry is not to worry. Okay. That's their only concern. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. The provision of God is with you even in your suffering. And then he says those sobering words, brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. They will, Jesus says, be hated by all. By, by all classes of people. Obviously not every single person or they wouldn't have any receptive people to their message. But by all, all classes of people, 
including family. Haddon Robinson says that several years ago he helped lead a tour in Turkey of the churches uh, that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. And on the last night, he said, we were in the city of Izmir and we're having dinner at one of its nicer hotels. And our guide had been in the United States at least 10 years, spoke English flawlessly. As we're eating, he began to ask us questions, serious questions about the Christian faith. And I said to him, if you're a follower of, follower of Islam and if you died tonight, would you be sure you could stand in the presence of Allah? No, he replied. There are five things that Muslims should do. I've done two out of five, he says. And then we began to talk about the gospel. We talked about it long into the night, he says. And before we left, I said to him, look, you're serious about our conversation. I know. It would not be faithful of me not to ask you if right now if you'd like to put your trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. And he said to me, you don't know what you're asking me. Do you know what would happen if I did that? If I announced it to anybody, my wife would leave me. My family would disown me. My boss would fire me. I may want to leave to go back to the United States, and the government would not give me an exit visa. I'd give up everything. You go back home tomorrow, I would not expect you would support me, and I would starve to death in my own culture. And then Haddon Robinson says, if you think that Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purposes, is a promise that you'll have a middle class life in a lovely little church, in a nice little town, where you may even get a pass to the country club, you're wrong. Paul did not promise that. And we could say this morning, neither did Jesus. I mean... Say what you want about Jesus. One thing's for sure. He did not sugarcoat it. Okay. But amidst these sobering words, there's hidden another promise. It's the promise that if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. It's the promise of salvation for those who persevere in their faith. What exactly the end is, is widely debated, but the promise is not. It's clear. It's salvation. It's rescue from sin and suffering. It's life with God forever. It's promised to those who persevere in their faith, even though they may face great suffering. And then that last verse is a bit of a puzzle. He says, I, truly I say to you, you'll not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And he says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. And I think it's important to realize here that fleeing to a different town when you're persecuted is different than denying. This is, this is not a call to pursue persecution. It's not. I mean, flee persecution, he says. That's different than denying. It's all part, actually, of a strategy that kept the gospel spreading. Because when they were persecuted, they would go to the next town, and the next, and the next. But the puzzling part, perhaps the most puzzling part, is Jesus' promise that they, um, they won't have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And 
I ran across at least seven different options to explain what that is. Um, I'm not going to go through all of them. Let me give you two that are reasonable and you can pick, okay? You can talk, here's one, the, perhaps the most common one. He's talking about his, his return as in the Son of Man comes and he's referring to the to the broader mission to the Jews, that this is going to be a tough sell to the people of Israel and that there's going to be a need for ongoing mission to the Jews throughout history until Christ returns. That's one option. Another option is he's talking very specifically about this mission. And he's just saying, look, I'm going to, I'm going to join up with you guys before you get through all the towns. Just a simple logistic statement. So those are two, perhaps two of the simpler, clearer options of the seven, and you can sort that out um, as you wish. But it raises a question, though, especially that second option. Is this stuff true for us? Kind of like we asked last week, or is it just just about the 12 back in the day for this particular mission? All this suffering, persecution stuff, is it true for us? And again, as, as I talked with you last week, it's helpful to say, is there anything that limits this specifically to them? So it couldn't be for us. Is there anything that, um, is, there, is there a continuity between what's taught about them and what's taught about the broader church, especially the, the church throughout the New Testament? Um, and, and to think about the big principles that are here, not so much every single detail. And so <clears throat> as we do that, you'll see that the expectation of suffering for Christ pervades the scriptures. Paul, later in the New Testament, is going to say it as clear and as simply as you can in his letter to Timothy. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So clearly, Jesus is warning his disciples. He's being honest with them. They're to expect to suffer even unto death, even at the hands of their own family, and it would seem to have broad application to us all. We shouldn't be surprised if we are asked to suffer for Christ. Now, why would this happen? Why would Jesus know that a mission designed to help people, these guys are being sent out to cast out demons, heal the sick, preach the good news, and they're going to be killed for it. Why, why does that happen? And I suppose the principle is like master, like servant. Jesus goes on to explain in the next couple of verses. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master, that's Jesus, the master of the house, Beelzebul, Satan kind of stuff. How much more will they malign those of his household? See, the reason for this warning of suffering for the twelve and for us by extension is simply this. We follow a crucified Messiah. They crucified him. Though he had done no wrong. We should not be surprised then if we suffer too. Peter talks about this 
He says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So I guess the obvious question at this point for folks like us in light of what Jesus has just indicated about the expectation of persecution for his followers is why aren't we persecuted more? And Matt Woodley in his commentary proposes two reasons. He says, one, we live in an exceptional time. Okay? This is one possible explanation for why you and me don't suffer um, persecution greatly. He says we, live in an, we might live in an exceptional time where the broad teaching of Jesus does not apply to American Christians today in the same way that it would have in the first century. It's not that we're better or smarter or nicer or more Christ-like, he says. We just live in a cultural and historical anomaly, this little window in time where Christians are not persecuted by their culture. Now, if this is the case... Even if it's the case, I should say, you don't have to be much of a cultural observer, keen cultural observer, to, to recognize that this is changing. Okay? It's changing in small, s subtle ways, probably, not explicit ways. Um, but our beliefs um, are increasingly in conflict with the, the values of our culture. You know, there was a Christian camp a few years ago that refused for their religious convictions. They would not rent their facilities for a homosexual wedding. And that was, they were convicted of violating the public accommodation provision of New Jersey's law against discrimination. Um, if we have lived in an historical anomaly, if we've lived in an exceptional time, uh, know that that's changing. This should increase our expectation and readiness that we will, even as we live gracious, humble, loving, Christ-honoring lives, will face persecution for our faith. Okay. We live in an exceptional time is one option, but there's another option, and that is that we are living less than exceptional lives. Okay. Uh, Woodley says, he says, we're like an ineffective soccer player. Okay? He's not marked by opponents because he's not a threat to score. So don't worry about it. Neither are we for the same reason. We're no threat to our opponent's game plan. So he's not worried about us. We're just taking up space on the field. It's kind of a bumper sticker kind of an idea, I think, but it's worth pondering. If you were on trial for being a follower of Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Jesus wisely buttresses these clear, honest words of suffering with great promises of hope. Um, Daniel alluded to them earlier, verses 26 and 27. Have no fear of them. He's, he's about to dispense some really powerful medicine if we're not going to have fear based on what he's just told us we're going to face. Possibly death. 
For nothing is covered, he says, that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Important public proclamations in Jesus' day were often made from flat rooftops. It was kind of like an elevated podium. People would go up and they would shout it from the rooftops. Jesus is saying, hey, don't be afraid. Shout my teaching from the rooftops. Okay? Proclaim it all. Don't be afraid to do that. Essentially, Jesus is telling us, don't be afraid to teach it all. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The fear of man, Proverbs tells us, is like a snare set for us. Rather than fearing men, the scripture encourages us to fear God. Isaiah, for instance, says, The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. The fear of the Lord is a positive thing. It is as though the fear of God will have a displacing effect on the fear of men. Because we fear God, we won't fear men. Think of it like this. Um, You're 16. You got the car. You also got a curfew. Your dad has set it. It's 11 o'clock. And you're with some friends with the car at a party. And it's, it's 10 till 11. And it's time to go. But the party's grand. And your friends don't want to go. And they start to press you about whether or not you're going to stick around at the party or you're going to go back to mommy and take the car back. Okay. Now here's the thing. If you fear dad more than you fear what your friends are saying, then, then you'll go, you'll take the car back. The fear of dad mutes the fear of your buddies. Okay. The greatest fear prevails and protects you. A good fear protects you from an evil, misleading, troublesome fear. Don't fear those who can just harm you physically. Fear God who can destroy both body and soul, Jesus says. And then he gives us this other reason, another reason not to be afraid of them. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now we add sparrows to the animal menagerie that Jesus is deploying for our good here. A sparrow was a cheap meal back in Jesus' day. It wasn't worth much. Okay. But God is keenly aware of their life and their suffering. It says they're falling to the earth. When they fall to the earth, the Father is with them. They don't fall apart from the Father. He's with them. He numbers the hairs of our head. He knows us well. He is with us. How much more us compared to these sparrows? We will not fall apart from the Father's caring presence with us. As Jessica sang it earlier, when Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches 
over me. It's not a promise of protection from suffering. That, that wouldn't make any sense in what Jesus has just taught. But it is a promise of his watchful, sovereign, caring, with us-ness. Okay? He's with us in our suffering. We will not be alone in what we face. When you suffer, know that you are supremely valued and your caring maker is with you in it. He will not abandon you, even though you go in it. You know, one of the great comforts of our, of our life as believers comes from Psalm 23, where it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not unlike what Jesus is talking about, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Okay. The Father is with me. And just as an aside, doesn't this passage, doesn't this verse really elevate human life uniquely in all of creation. And this is foundational uh, for theology of the sanctity of life, this kind of passage. It's one of the cornerstones for it. Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father. My Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. It is a great promise and a great warning. And I don't want to minimize this warning, but I do think it merits some careful reflection because likely this does not mean a, a one-time occurrence. You deny, abandon, betray Christ one time, and that's it. Okay. Otherwise, Peter, he's out. All the rest of the disciples, they're all out because they all abandoned Jesus on when he was um, on the cross. I think what is in mind here is more of a denial that sticks. It recurs. It marks us. It defines us. Okay. But having said that, I don't want to minimize what's going on here. Listen to no less of a theologian than John Calvin on this very matter. as He says, if a man runs away, or keeps silence, is he not, by frustrating the work of the Son of God, taking himself out of the family of God? It's a sobering warning. How do we deny Christ? By our actions, or by our words, or by our silence, or by our participation, or by our isolation? I wonder which of those verses best describes you. One who acknowledges Christ or one who denies Him? Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And again, he returns to this sobering theme of the division of families. And I know that some of you have experienced that. You chose to follow Christ, and it cost you um, closeness with your family. I remember when, when I was in high school, uh, me and a cadre of friends were mercifully rescued by Jesus Christ and saved. And it changed us. Um, 
And we started, um, started Bible studies in our high school and started going to these weekly Bible studies and having meetings after football games to, to encourage our friends to trust Christ with us. And uh, it was really a dynamic time. A lot, of, uh, a lot of Christian leaders came out of that little cadre of um, kids in that Sunday school class in the basement of that church. And, uh, but one of my buddies, uh, Marty, Marty's dad got concerned. He thought we were going overboard with this religion thing. And so he started to have parent meetings. And he started to not let Marty come to our Bible studies. Because um, we were just going a little too far with this. Now, as a parent now, I look back and I think, there are kids in our high school experimenting with drugs, out drinking on the weekend, all kinds of sexual escapades. And you're worried because your kid's going to a Bible study. How does that happen? How, how does this kind of stuff divide? Um, Jesus says that's his purpose. This is, I came to divide. Well, how does this happen? Why is this so divisive? Look, look at these next verses. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, Jesus says. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. See, it's about greatest loves. That's what divides. It's about what you love the most. What's the supreme value in your life? Remember back in um, Matthew 6, Jesus is doing this greatest sermon ever, right? Sermon on the Mount. And he says in chapter 6, no one can serve two masters, right? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, for instance. And you notice the language there. Devoted to one. Despise the other. See, if you mess with someone's great devotion in their life, they're going to despise you. They will rise to the defense of that great devotion. Whatever it is, it's their great love. And they will end up despising you because of the threat against their great love. And you can only have one great love, Jesus says. One supreme love. You know, it's really obvious back in their day, you can imagine someone out of a pagan background converts to Jesus. And so they no longer go down with their family for the pagan temple sacrifices that are done publicly. And their whole family is divided, publicly divided. It still happens, this kind of explicit division happens today. I was talking to a friend of mine just a couple weeks ago about a friend of hers who's from Nepal. And she is the daughter um, of a very prominent man in Nepal. He just died. He was a Hindu. So there's a week of rituals, of Hindu worship rituals surrounding his funeral. She can't participate in her father's funeral. 
because of faith in Christ. The great loves divide. They do. And Jesus tells us that it may even cost us family. He says, if, if you don't love me supremely, you're not worthy of me. Those are sobering words. They hearken back to last week's passage in verse 11 where he said, you go into a house and if they're worthy, and then he explains what that means, if they accept you and they accept your message, they're worthy. The idea is that if you accept Jesus and you accept his message, then if you get it, he'll become your supreme love. And what that makes me wonder is that if Jesus is more of a hobby for you than he is your great love, I wonder if you get it. I wonder if you really get it. This is the last bit we'll get to today. Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a great warning. Pursue your life apart from Christ, apart from him being your supreme love, you'll lose it. Dale Bruner says, there are persons whose passion, whose life passion is to make it. To work in the best situation, to live in the best neighborhood, to have only the best things in the house, to manipulate the best connections. This is finding or making one's life secure. Jesus promises this search one thing, destruction. Life was not meant to be lived like this. It's too selfish. Yuppiedom self-destructs, he says. Thus, preaching that is devoted mainly to helping people make it, helping them find themselves, giving them spiritual or psychological tips on how to be a success, how to have peace of mind, how to love oneself, how to be a transformed person, and the rest is often rank betrayal, he says. It's teaching people to concentrate on the very matters Jesus wants them to forsake. But Jesus makes, also makes this great promise attached to it. Sacrifice your life for my sake, he says, and you'll find it. Bruner continues wisely, It is well known, even humanly, that the world's happier persons are not those trying to make themselves happy. The happy are usually those caught up in a cause who one day notice, Hey, I'm happy. And he says, The cause of causes is discipleship to Jesus of Nazareth. Grant Osborne says, following Jesus is costly and may mean rejection by those closest to the disciple. Make no mistake about it. Shallow preachers make it sound as if conversion to Christ means the cessation of all problems in this world, as if we are the king's kids and we're supposed to lead lives of royalty. He says, that's a heresy. For Scripture could not be clearer that Jesus has brought a sword, not a checkbook, to the earth. So clearly, clearly, Jesus calls us to, all, all who would be His disciples, He calls us 
to be ready to follow him even into suffering, even, even unto death, even at the hands of our own family. But he surrounds it by all kinds of promises, the provision of God, the hope of salvation, words of witness, um, the return of the Son, the finding of life itself. Makes you wonder, though, why does Jesus set it up this way? Why does he send out the twelve to suffer? Why doesn't he send them out uh, to a party? I think we got to remember back to where we started in chapter 9. It's the expression of his compassion. It is John 3.16, 2.0. It goes like this, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world to die, to suffer and to die for those he loved. As the Father in love sent the Son to suffer for us, now the Son in love, for those who do not know Him yet, sends us to suffer for them. It is the inescapable shape of the love of God. It is given to you for others. The wealth transfer doesn't stop with you. As the Father in love sent the Son to suffer for us, now the Son in love sends us to suffer for those without Christ. And as we close our service and approach this table, we are confronted with the depth of His suffering and love for us. And with this, with this passage echoing in our ears as a backdrop, we're reminded of what, what it is he is asking of us. And so today, as, as you come to this table and drink with gladness of all that the suffering of Christ has purchased you, it's a great opportunity to say, Jesus, I'm in. I will follow you, even in your suffering. As you have suffered for me, so I will now extend your sufferings to others, to those without Christ, whether that's family or friend or neighbor or those who've never heard. Today, as you come to the table and drink of the goodness of Christ's suffering love for you, Let it be a time when you just solidify your own commitment to follow him in that suffering for others. Would you bow with me in prayer?